welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wired, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome on to Searching for Mana, Phil. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to have you on the show. Fuller introduction, Philip Bellamont. Yeah. Pretty good, pretty good. Okay. I like it, yeah. Thank you. Bellamont in a very <laughs> English accent. How, how would you say? Bellamont. Bellamont. <laughs> He's the founder um, at and of Zilch, who uh, we are in uh, December 2021. Britain's quickest ever company to double unicorn status. Uh, and Philip is um, littered with accolades. I'm going to let him uh, talk you through. Uh, so you're not going to sound humble to start with, but then we'll go through your bio. Yeah, thanks Bill. for the tear up on that. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, no, really, really excited to be here. And we're, for anybody listening um, in audio, in the Zilch offices, which is super cool. Uh, and we're going to some of the props that I can see right now in the background that um, are celebrating that recent um, victory that the guys had. So really excited to go into it all with you, Phil. And if you could be so kind to talk to the audience about some of the headlines of where you're at right now with Silch, please. Well, I think you alluded to one of them. I mean, one of the really big milestones we've achieved recently is we've gone from Series A to Unicorn, the fastest out of any company out of Europe ever, which is pretty phenomenal. I mean, saying that that we just, you know, still today so proud of the whole team. I mean, it's just really such a phenomenal thing to achieve. But more important than that, is our unit economics and usage rates, right? So, so it's nice to have the headlines, the headlines of unicorn, double unicorn, that's great, that's amazing. But, you know, just took us 13 months to get to a million customers on the platform. And that's what's phenomenal about that is everyone looks at Zilch and talks about BNPL, but even if you look at neobanks, companies like, great companies like Revolut that have done a phenomenal scaling job, you know, we actually beat them to a million customers as well let alone other businesses in BNPL like Klarna or Layby or Afterpay or Slip or we did it faster than all those guys as well too. So, so that was really just encouraging to see. And the other thing that we love about our platform and, and our customer base is that customers use Zilch more times in a month than they use competitors in, in, in a whole year. So it just shows you that you know, customers are really you know, loving what we give them and they find a phenomenal easy use case in our product. So those are the numbers that we really love. Another headline for me personally is that, um, you know, I recently won this uh, British Entrepreneur of the Year Award, which was a phenomenal accolade to, to, to pick up. I mean, it's the one thing I said to the team is we should change it to Great British Entrepreneurs of the Year Award, right? Because each and every one of our team, in their own right, really, by joining this business as a startup, some of them joined when we were three people, five people. They took that risk and they had the vision to invest their time and energy into this, which is what entrepreneurship is all about. So really, I look at the whole team as entrepreneurs, and this award is really for all of us. But it just was such a fantastic accolade to receive, um, especially given all of the amazing businesses that were part of that group yeah. uh, from which they selected. So 
So these are two major milestones that we as a business together have achieved over the last few months, which is quite phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. Um, we'll share in our show notes some of the uh, people who've won that previously, and it is, it is all striking to be in that company. So congratulations to all the entrepreneurs at Zilch. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we'll get into the metrics of the business as well, um, because I believe uh, you know, we, yes, we can talk about valuation, which is super interesting, but how you did that is really interesting, but I'll, I'll do that after everybody's got to understand your background and how technical you are and how you think as an entrepreneur, but to finish the, um, understanding of the company structure and scale at the moment, could you, could you list through some, you know, crunch based facts, you know, what have you raised to date? How many people are in the company? Where are you distributed? Um, just so we can understand what the company internally is structured like at the moment, please. Sure. So I actually just wanted to check here because we have, um, you know, we always have these things changing on a daily basis. It's interesting <laughs> when you go out to do a funding round and you create a, an IM. We've never created a deck as one point of interest. We, we just don't believe in them. Wow. Um, we only create investment memorandums. And the problem is every week, they're wrong, you know. So we, you know, we went out. We said 1.2 million customers. Another two weeks go by, and we're sitting on 1.3 million customers, and so on and so forth. But needless to say, total today we've raised about just over 400 million dollars, and that's in debt, capital, and equity as well. Yep. So you know, we've raised. We're fortunate enough to have Goldman Sachs join the business, and we have a warehouse facility with Goldman um, that that rolls up to about 175 million dollars total. Um, the way the business operates, we turn our lending book almost 11 times per annum. So that gives us about 2.1 billion of, of runway in terms of underlying sales per annum. Uh, on the equity capital, it is as, as I've mentioned. And so that's all just been, that's been raised in ordinary shares directly into the business to date. Uh, and that's from a variety of investors. Early days, high net worth individuals, ultra high nets through to venture capital firms and institutions like Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So, so we have a range of those and we obviously, we can list those out uh, for people. In terms of the business, we have about 200 people in the company today. Um, beginning of the year, we had 40. So it's been an interesting Zoom hiring mission, yeah. which has been unreal. Actually, it's been pretty phenomenal. Uh, and that is without outsourced partners. So call center partners, we have about 50 in South Africa. Yeah. So altogether, we have around 260 people around the company today, um, but directly hired in the business is 200. So that's where we're at as a company for right now. And where are you geographically? So geographically, all of our customers today are in the UK. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about where we're going next. In terms of the team, it's what you would expect in today's world, right? So we've got, you know, headquarters are in London, We've just set up our HQ for the US, which is in Miami. Yeah. And then we have a tech hub out of Warsaw, Poland, and customer support out of South Africa. Yeah. So that's the makeup of the team today. And of course, you have some remote workers uh, around the world as well. Sorry, the last place I'll mention is our customer acquisition team all sits out of Canada. Yeah. So that's really where the people are in the business. Yeah, very cool. So whistle stop tour through um, some of the headlines, which are very exciting at Zilch. Um, some of the structure, and then we'll come back onto the many uh, questions about, you know, what what the projections are in the business, and dig into some of the business models as, as well. So, if we now go back and uh, go through your bio, Phil, um, 
we were talking before we started recording and uh, it seems like you've come from a really entrepreneurial background. So let's really dig into that. What was the first moment and time where you started to think about who you might be in your career? And please do go back as far as possible. I think, I think probably the first, I would say the first view to what I would like to be probably started as some type of like we all do when we're young, when we're kids, you know, you have someone you look to. And probably, you know, for me was my father. And really that was more about being a businessman. I wanted to be someone who was in business, um, you know, and, and really working very hard. Uh, that's what I saw in my father every day. Um, and then that evolved, obviously, over time. You know, it's like you go from, I'm going to be a, I want to be a dinosaur when I grow up to, <laughs> I want to be a, you know, I want to be a, a businessman to actually, this is the job I would like to do. And so over time, my father started as a technologist and then moved into entrepreneurship. He, he built a proprietary piece of tech, moved out of that business with a partner and founded his business. And that changed a lot of things um, in, in our lives, certainly the amount of time that he had to devote to the company, the pressure that he was under to deliver, um, you know, and obviously what I learned from that. So, so entrepreneurship has always been something that for me, I've seen in my father and always looked at and gone, you know, I would really love to be doing something in this space. I want to build something. Yeah. We never spoke about this at home as he's an entrepreneur. It just wasn't the case. It was, what are we, what are we building? What is it that we're trying to achieve? In his case, it was banking the underbanked, uh, building a financial inclusions business. Um, and so, and so that was always the direction of travel for me. I love technology and I wanted to be building something new. If, if I listen to that, then you could have a different child who um, was exposed to an entrepreneurial parent and not like it because sure. there might be long hours and you don't understand what the benefit out of it is. I assume, but I, I don't want to make assumptions, but I assume perhaps your father was very good at distilling the purpose of why he was doing it and that passion came across from that. But talk us through that. Why? Because how you put it didn't necessarily come across like, of course, Phil's going to want to go do that, right? Or was it about seeing that that made you think, this is, this is it, I want to do that too? It's an interesting question. I mean, no two people are the same, as you say. I've got two sisters, one older, one younger, um, and both very driven and both didn't necessarily look and say, I want to go and be, again, an entrepreneur. Uh, one became a lawyer and another's an architect. So, um, cool. you know, pretty, pretty cool. But like you say, everyone's doing their own thing. Yep. Maybe it was just a case for me of, I didn't enjoy, you know, I did, I did well in school, but I didn't enjoy sitting and regurgitating work. I could do it. And, you know, for me, this is the other thing that, that you subsequently learn is nobody is special. There is no superpower. It's just hours, right? It's just work. So, you know, you want to go and do something or study something. You, you think that these degrees are difficult. It's really not the case. It's how well can you learn and regurgitate something and then apply some of that. So for me, I think the difference was I didn't want to sit and learn something and regurgitate it. What I wanted to understand was how does it work and what can I build on this thing? And that for me was very interesting. And so the, I think the natural way to go and explore that in the working world is through entrepreneurship. In other words, you have no job. <laughs> you need to create one. What is it that you're going to do? And, um, and that's really, I suppose, what happened. That's in my mind where I thought, 
I never thought about being an entrepreneur, but I also never thought that I did or didn't want to work for anyone. Yeah, this is um, something I can relate to massively. I, um, you know, in school in uh, in the UK, you've got GCSEs and A levels. Yeah, so this is like sixteen to eighteen. And through that phase, people are trying to work out what they might do for their degree. And for whatever reason, at that in that phase, uh, I was really interested in psychology, um, but I didn't end up pursuing it because. What I was reading about, the stuff I was curious about, was past the A level, uh, past the A level, and past the degree level as well. When you actually looked at what you would then go and study a degree for psychology, it's literally parrot fashion: reading a yeah. book, regurgitating it, as you say. And I was like, I'm not interested in that. I want to theorize already. Yeah. So I was a terrible academic because <laughs> I'd had to wait seven years to get the PhD until I might finally get to do this one tiny thing yeah. that I get to prove as some type of invention. And so that's when you, you know, when, when then immediately when I went into the career, I was just looking at the sector and the space and thinking like, how can this be better? And as I suppose that's some element of, you know, risk and creativity that an entrepreneur has, which is fine, but, um, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it right. Then it's about how do you actually transact? How do you actually make a material business? And so that's the other element that's, um, interesting about you, you, you came from, in a, in an era where not everybody would a technical engineering background and your father as well was an entrepreneur engineer. And when you hear yes. that, you're like, okay, that's a perfect, uh, that's a perfect storm there. So maybe you weren't enjoying it, but you knew that it was sensible and clever to get the engineering degree for what you wanted to pursue. Did your father tell you that would be a good idea? Talk us through that element of the actual practical skill set that you bothered to get, even though you already wanted to go build something probably. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, and and the, the short answer is yes. So he he was always steering me in this direction of business science and computer science. Um, you know, that's kind of where he felt comfortable, and and we loved sitting around together building applications in Turbo Pascal back then or yeah. Delphi. You know, that was that was a pastime of ours. That's something we enjoyed. And and this is the other thing I found is that people always go, you know, well, I want to do something. I want to do what I'm passionate about. And it's kind of a little bit, it sometimes doesn't just work that way, right? It's, it's what I found where I was very fortunate is that I really was passionate and enjoyed programming. I loved it, you know, so while others, and we went through our degrees and, you know, everyone's having some fun in university. And of course we all did, and that was great. But what I found is in my downtime, holidays or things like this, I was building applications. I was going and writing apps. And that would excite me. That would interest me. You know, friends of mine would be more interested in playing golf or, you know, something else. My hobby was really this. Yeah. And so, and so it's sort of a little bit both ways around, I think. You know, you, you need to be good at something. You can't just be passionate about saying, I'm passionate about lots of things that I'm not good at. <laughs> so I can't go and just do that because I'm, you know, passionate about them. Well, I'm not good. I'm not any good at them. Uh, in this case, I really was good at this. And what you tend to find, I found anyway, is if you're really good at something, you tend to be quite passionate about it, right? Yeah. And so that's what happened for me is my father def definitely directed, created that direction of travel for me. But I really fell in love with computers, you know, um, engineering in this regard. And then, and then the business around it, yeah. which is really important. And so that's where I spent and poured all of my time and energy into this was really putting the hours in to go and create something new, to go and start to learn. And that's what I think I loved about computer science is that there was an underlying, you know, understanding of the code base. 
and you could build whatever you liked. You know, you could sit down in front of your keyboard and you could build whatever you liked. It could be a calculator application. It could be a game. It could be whatever you wanted to build. You could do it. And that was really exciting for me. That's what I found really interesting. So that allows you to keep on over time compounding a skill set that can take you into different directions. So, you know, entrepreneurship is, is like the ocean. You could just go sure. to anything, which is another quandary. Could you talk us through with that skill set that you had, then uh, what your first business venture and um, entrepreneurial experience was? Yeah, absolutely. And it actually came from, because as you say, entrepreneurship could be anything. So in my, in my thesis, my final year thesis, I actually built a biometrics uh, system. Uh, and this was with fingerprint biometrics, really topical and interesting at the time. And of course, we've gone on to use them in lots of applications, but I'm not saying I would honestly say today, I'm very fascinated about minutiae detail on biometrics. Um, what was more interesting to me is I was working with a partner and we were doing a lot of value added services in this business I started, which, which I'll come to. And he got the first ever iPhone that came to South Africa. So South Africa, you know, you got nothing <laughs> when it launched. So you had to jailbreak the phone and bring it out to South Africa. <laughs> and that's how you had to do it. And I just remember, you know, the first time ever seeing this phone. Um, and that was after my love for Nokia devices. I just loved Nokia phones. You know, I just had to have <laughs> any Nokia phone I could, the latest phone I had to have it. And I loved building applications for phones. And then I saw the iPhone. And really, you know, that again, just in my mind, sort of said, this is where we need to be. We've got to be in mobile. This is the, the future. It's what I love. So it was really quite a turning point. Uh, mobile devices, the iPhone for me is why I started pouring so much time and energy into it. It was no one saying specifically, you should do this. Yeah. But so, so with all of that background, really, when I began the thesis in, in my final year, I learned that the um, university would actually own the rights to the IP. Right. That's the deal. Yeah. And so I was going to build a mobile gaming business idea out and decide not to do that because I wanted to keep that for myself. And so I went and did this biometrics platform with, with my group and, and friends. We actually ended up winning the, winning the competition for this biometric system of ours anyway, which was fantastic. But it's not really something that I was very interested in pursuing longer term. So you could go on there after then to go and commercialize and I chose not to do that. I, I went immediately and started my company. And again, you know, a lot of people take gap years after uni and they'll go and take some time off. And it just didn't interest me. I was just itching to get into the market. I wanted to go and build something. I didn't want to sit around, you know, and go on holiday for a year or two. And so that's what I did. And I went and started my company. It wasn't, the name wasn't hugely inventive. It was called P-Bell. Philip Bellamont was kind of like the, the best I could come up with back then. And really what we did is we said, let's go and build mobile games. Yeah, cool. And this is not casino games. These are, think Farmville, but like a bad version yeah. on a Nokia 3310 or Samsung D600. That was what we were doing. And so that's really where we started. And, and I was fortunate enough, I'd gone to university with a couple of great people. And so the normal story, you call people around you that you know, and you say, well, listen, I want to do this thing. Are you interested to join me? And we give it a shot. And that's what happened, you know, so we pulled together a few, a few guys, got a little office and, you know, went off to go and build this beautiful business, an amazing Excel spreadsheet and it was brilliant. Every evening I could sit and drag the revenue line further to the right and I was making a lot of money, <laughs> you know, uh, it was very easy to make the money on the Excel spreadsheet. But needless to say, you discover that models are a complete waste of time and what you should rather do is go do it. 
do something now and iterate from that thing. And that's what we did. So we went and built this mobile gaming company. And the whole concept was social gaming. But this was before, at that stage, even the iPhone had come along. This was before um, Facebook or any big social media pervasive adoption. You know, we still had 56K dial-up modems. We're like five years just prior to that. So, so data was very expensive in, in South Africa back then still. And so, you know, it was quite a big leap to see how people are going to go from playing Snake to, you know, some social type of game where they need data to interact. Yeah. But that's the leap of faith we took. And so ultimately, we built these games, really cool. People could use airtime to purchase items in the games, or they could transfer that airtime to one another. And what we found, and then they could enter competitions with this airtime as well. And what we found is that there's a lot of airtime being passed around. People were entering competitions, but no one was playing the game anymore. And so we got rid of the games and kept the airtime uh, business. And so we created a mobile payments business. And so really the initial idea of the social gaming was a complete failure, really, if we look back on it now. Um, and ultimately, though, I look at it and I think it wasn't a failure because it was the wrong idea. Think how large Farmville became later on, yeah. just sort of 10 years later or six, seven years later, yeah. was massive, huge business. And social games today are still massive companies. Um, it just wasn't at the right time. So, you know, we're just like almost 10 years too early, but it was a failure at the time. Yeah. And we didn't have the funding or the attrition. You know, we didn't have the resource to say, we'll hang in there for 10 years and see how it goes. So how old were you at that point? So that must have been about 20, 22, 23, maybe around there. So are, are, you, are you personally at that point stressed and struggling? How did you handle it? Well, well, this is where I think having a mentor like someone like my father was fantastic, you know, because obviously I would be sitting there first time entrepreneur now you're running a business we have 12 people on the payroll and i walk in every day and payday is the worst day it's of my life right right yeah you know and i'd never worked for anyone so i didn't know what the other side was where people were like i love payday <laughs> i've always hated payday <laughs> because payday is the day we pay everyone rather than get paid and so you know you get there and you look around you think i'm responsible for these people you're yeah. 23 and you know things aren't going as smooth as we thought we we did everything you could imagine. We started where you could use the airtime. People weren't doing that as fast as we wanted, as I say, not playing the game. So we, we changed the model so it became an ad model, if you can believe it. This was well before app stores even, right? We had to build these apps and products for every different phone. You had to port it across all the Samsungs, all the Nokias, all the Sonys, all the Blackberries, just one app, and then get a website that they could go download the jar files. You know, This was yeah. not something you could get off the app store. And then you, um, you know, so we went to an ad model and then you just open a new can of, can of worms. We had to learn how do we speak to agencies? How do we keep that ecosystem intact? You know, the booking shops, the agencies, the brands. It just was such an interesting learning curve. And so eventually we're trying to sell cost per thousand impressions by stitching in, you know, ads onto the football field of our mobile game we had built. And this was already, you know, this is 17 years ago. That's crazy. Right? Yeah. So... So what we found is that was all quite quite difficult. Meantime, this airtime thing was working so well. So, so, so when I would sit with my father and go, you know, what do we do about this? Because initially to fund this business, you know, I'd gone to my father and said to him, well, what do I do? You know, how do we, how do we get this thing off the ground? You've had some success and made some money. You know, I think I've got a good idea. You know, why, why don't you fund this? This sounds like a good plan. 
And he had said to me, no, he's got a better plan. Why don't I go find someone to fund it? And if I do so, then he's always happy to support and he can actually match. And that's what we did. I think that was a fantastic way for me to learn that this is not so easy. You need to go and raise these funds yourselves, uh, yourself. And so that's what I did. But needless to say, we then got a little bit into the business, realized that maybe the mobile payments was better than the games. And so what we decided is we should pivot. And it was very useful to have my father sit with and be like, look, what do we do? You know, it's not going as well as I hoped. It's not going as fast. Um, but I've got this great idea. I think we can go into the gaming, um, sorry, the airtime transfer and competitions business. There's huge demand. We can do this in Africa. You know, it's something accessible. Everyone can use, uh, can use this product. And so my father loved this. Uh, the funders I had brought in initially didn't. You know, so I went to speak to them about it and they said to me, you showed us a business plan. That's what we're funding. Stick to the plan. And I'm like, yes, that's true, but it's not working. <laughs> right? So I'm telling you it will fail. And they're like, well, we don't, you know, we don't really care. We've agreed to fund this. We want you to see it out. And, and my view was like, guys, you know, this is just, why would we do that? I know it's, it's going to fail here. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately we had to agree to disagree and and find and we actually had to buy them out to pivot and if we hadn't have done that that first business of mine would have been a failure and it's difficult right to recover from that and so we pivoted borrowed another equivalent of 200,000 at that time rand to so call it 10,000 pounds yeah. and and launched in Namibia and Botswana and we paid that back in 2 weeks you know and scaled to be making a million a month uh, in just sort of 6 months so it became a huge success. We rolled out in 27 African countries, millions of customers throughout the continent, um, and really pivoted to what became a, a payments business, a mobile payments business. And so really for me, you know, you don't realize the lesson at the time. You're just grinding through this, trying to make the next best decision. But I suppose the lesson there is, you know, you need to know when to pivot. Yeah. And it's okay, yeah. right? What we were doing to start actually didn't work. So, so we used that and moved on. So that's really you developing a passion to refining and pivoting in business. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and being stubborn about not listening to stick to your deck and business plan. Yeah. Which is, which is a good lesson. Uh, having a mentor, which is crucial, and a mentor in this instance, they're obviously very loyal and you can trust. Um, but everybody should be finding those when they're entrepreneur. Um, someone slightly removed who's got a good vantage in genuinely an interest in giving you the absolute right advice, which sometimes would be to stop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the, the foray into from gaming payments and biometrics. Yeah. And, and obviously now where we are, you could describe Zilch as many things, but I mean, underneath the hood, it's a payments business. Sure. So let's move through to um, you founding Zilch and how you came up with um, the the seed of what is now this very successful business. Absolutely, and and to get there really was the final stage of of my business, this this payments mobile payments company. So we had gone to the stage where we had a great infrastructure, and we moved to then really working with companies like Mastercard, issuing virtual cards. So we were doing we did the first cash to virtual card for Uber on the continent. Very cool. Um, we then, we, we were doing distribution of, uh, food parcels via these tokens with the world food program. And 
And really what had happened at the end of this is my father had a cars payments business. I had a mobile business and ultimately reversed my company into his. And that was the culmination of this into, uh, all, you know, an all encompassing financial inclusions company where our customers, you know, sitting in Africa could use their green screen phone, have a card in their hand and have access to all the financial services that otherwise um, they will have been excluded from prior. And, and in doing that, we built a number of products, one of these being a lending product. And this lending product was focused specifically on killing payday loans. Yep. So what we noticed was, I'll take South Africa as one example, we distributed social welfare for 22 million people in the country each month. And what we noticed was that almost 80% of this payment was being deducted against by payday lenders. And that was a huge problem. And so we came up with an interesting product at the time, which was really a um, installments product. And this was already now, this must have been more than or around 15 years ago, more than, at least more than 12. And so when we looked at this, what we did is we came up with a product that was for food, clothing, and healthcare. And we negotiated a commission from those vendors. And so the customer of ours would go there they could dial up via USSD, star 150, star hash. We would triangulate them because there was no chip in the phone, of course. And if they were somewhere near that store, we would make money available on the card, the physical plastic MasterCard, and lock it to that store. So the customer could go get their food or their clothing, insert the card. We would pay the retailer on their behalf, yep. and they would pay us back in installments over time for free, no interest. Sound familiar, right? Yeah. And so, and so that's what we were doing already in the middle of Africa in brick and mortar stores 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. This was a massive product for us, huge product for us, millions of customers. And so, and so fast forward to six years ago, really, you know, we both had exited the group, the company, my father since uh, semi-retired, he acts as chair on, on the board of my business today. And, and otherwise, um, you know, I looked at this and said, we, I want to go and see if we can't build something in a developed market that, you know, we can really go and add some tangible value and build something that will resonate with people in the yep. market uh, like the UK or the US or somewhere like this. Just at that point, um, you had so much uh, understanding and experience of the terrain and the tapestry of Africa. Yeah. That's bold to not stay that. Is that because there was some type of non-compete previous business or you didn't want to uh, or was it genuinely I want to now take this knowledge base and I'm excited to go to the developed continent the latter I mean so you know there's a couple of things the first is it's hard to build um, you know 10 20 30 billion dollar company out of EM it's it's quite difficult because unfortunately you don't get the multiples yeah right um, and that's a problem that's that's an issue so you know I wanted to build something sizable in a shorter period of time. And at the same time, go and use all of the knowledge that I'd accumulated working in very tough environments on the African continent. It's things like where some, you know, people don't even have fingerprints. People have got multiple ID books. People are in some cases ghosts. They're not even registered. Yeah. And how are you lending and running a dead book in these countries? We managed to get this right. Can you take some of that and apply it in a market like this? And all the problems that we saw there, do they actually still exist in a market like the UK? So, Bill, you said something there. You're on the Searching for Mana show where we're trying to understand 
you know, um, what's the core and the essence and the magic of the entrepreneur. And I, I know, I, I know you think that, um, there is not necessarily a magic there's, um, working hard and putting the time in. And of course that becomes easier if you're passionate about it. And we'll come, come on to that at the back end. You said, I wanted to build something really big, 10, 20, 40 billion. Yeah. Right? So I want to go back to that exact point where you're making a decision because you're, you're, you've got success at this point by the sounds of it. Yeah. You've worked out that you've got a good relationship with a bunch of people to work. You've understood a space. You're making an impact in your home country, which is awesome. Yeah. But there's something driving you to have an impact on a massive scale. What is that? What's that thing for you? It's hard to say what it is. I think I think it's just basically seeing the impact that you can have with a product that resonates is really fantastic to see, right? Um, and that almost compels you to say, where else could we do this? Is there is there a is there a global stage? Yeah. Is there something bigger that we can go and take on here and add the value? Well, there's some heroes that you mentioned the iPhone, so obviously one for a lot of people, whether. Whether people like him or not, <laughs> sure. Steve Jobs is a very inspiring, creative person who's had an impact on just about probably everybody. And your moment you fell in love with what to do stemmed from that first iPhone. Uh, was it? Was it? Was 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 that something to do with it? Were, were there certain figures or certain things you see when you're just like, I want to do that? I, I would say absolutely. I mean, it, it comes back again to, I would say certainly back to my father, where you know he was very successful and I wanted certainly follow in his footsteps and, and, you know, together with him. And that's, that's why it's such a fantastic relationship is he would always want me to do better, you know, um, which is, which is really would make him really happy and excited uh, to see that a lot of people who do well, want you to do well, as long as you don't do better than them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and he's with him and that's not the case at all. So I would say that's where it began. And then from there, once you've had some success and you see, wow, I can make a difference. People will use this product that I've, that I've built, you know, that we sat here all day and night and worked on all day and night. People are using this by the millions. That's really exciting. Is there a bigger stage that we can go and do this on? Um, that's also just outside of your comfort zone. You know, it's easy to just sit and do something again and again in one place. Um, but for me, it was more a case of, it wasn't a push away from South Africa and Africa. I love, you know, this is my home country. We love the place. It's more of a pool. Yeah. It's a, oh, well, how could we go and get this right, um, you know, on a more global scale? And you um, have mentioned your father a number of times, which makes a lot of sense. It's super interesting. But throughout this whole journey, um, you, you're, you're now married to, <laughs> you've had a partner for 17 years. Yeah. Um, so I don't know their name. Alison. So Alison, when you're, in these moments, thinking about these things, um, has been a huge support for your entrepreneurialism and and taking the opportunity as well. Absolutely, I mean, and this is the thing, right? Uh, anyone who wants to be an entrepreneur should probably warn their partner, yeah. um, because it's not it's not. I wouldn't imagine it's the most fun. Um, but yes, you know, we've been together since I started my first company. She was with me since then. You know, we've been together for seventeen years now. Um, and you know, she's had to see all of the ups and downs, the highs and lows. And, and the reality is just this complete ongoing perpetual dedication to the cause. And I think that's something that, you know, people who have maybe not gone and built something themselves, 
really don't understand is I don't work on it. You know, it doesn't keep hours. I work on it all of the time, all day, every day, every night, every holiday, every weekend. Um, you know, when we're sitting around watching TV, I'm thinking about it. When you're holiday lying by the pool, I'm, I might be reading a book and taking notes on what I could use to inspire the team about the business. I'm always thinking about it. But that and doesn't stress you out. You, you enjoy that and you lean into it. I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah. But she's been very good. I have to say it, just like yanking me away every <laughs> night. I would just never go anywhere anyway. Yeah. I would just be working all the time. And she's been great over the years at, at actually being like, I've booked this trip. We are going. You know, you don't get to say no. Otherwise, I would never go anywhere. Um, do, you so, put, do you put anything into your... We're both fans of Tim Ferriss. Yeah. So he loves cutting up routines. Yeah. Um, so I, I get where the mind is. The mind is like 10 out of 10. I want to be like, you know, doing and improving and iterating and thinking about this. Do you put anything into your routines that creates that meditation, creates those pockets where um, it allows you to, to be to be a bit away from it or or actually like you don't like talk us through that. Yeah. I I must say it's kind of the actively engaged stuff is the only stuff that works to get me away from it. I mean, if I'm just going to go to gym as an example, let's say you're on your own, you go to gym and you're like, this is going to work. doesn't work for me. You know, I'll sit down, you know, I'll, I'll start doing subset of whatever it is. And actually my phone will be, I'll start reading one thing and that's it. Now I'm off. I'm done. You know, I think active engagement stuff, whether that's sport or, you know, something like a class where all you're concentrating on is not dying, like Barry's boot camp, I find is <laughs> phenomenal for active engagement because you're just worried you're going to die. Yeah. So that type of stuff is the only thing that really brings any re- relief. Um, outside of that, spending time with, with my wife, then, you know, we do a lot of, like I say, she'll organize trips for us and we'll go away and she'll organize things. We'll go and do those specifically. Um, and obviously then with my son, it's difficult to focus on anything because you just, you know, don't touch that, grab this, you know, he's going to knock something. So, so that's where I get the relief, but you know, I'll be honest and my wife's come to terms with this. We'll go on holiday. First two days is like trying to wind down. That's hard, difficult. (laughs) And then I get like three days where I'm, I start to relax and actually it's quite nice. You know, we'll, I'll read and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of relax a bit. And then that's finished for me. Then, then it starts going back to now, you know, the leg starts bouncing at lunch and I'm, I'm itching to get back or at least work on something. You know, everything I do, I find I'm always, I'm always looking for activities that I believe are going to contribute to bettering the position I'm in right now. And that's normally coming to work, normally. So, if I, you know, I don't like to do things for the sake of doing them. It doesn't interest me. Yeah. Um, I'm Phil... Yeah. Thanks for being so open. And sure. like the good thing is you know yourself. So <laughs> know how to how to balance it. And and I'm uh somewhere on that range as well where the only things I've found allow me to like not go into work mode. Uh exactly like you say, you know, if you're like playing squash yeah. or if there's some instructor. Like I went on this tennis camp for a week, but like they literally buried. Yeah, that's great. Catch you. Yeah. And like you can't do anything but like oh, switch up whereas if I'm yeah. in the gym, yeah, I'm just like yeah, I can work. So <laughs> I, I, I feel you on that one. I think people understand like the, like what Zilch has been up to. There's a few metrics I really want to go into because it's, it's incredible. Actually, you know, I want to understand the company journey as much as anything. So like, sure. again, you've got a bunch of experience. You go set this business up and this time it's like, okay, I'm going to go really big here. I think there's a massive opportunity. And then how did you go about setting that company up? So did you 
come to it with a bunch of founders? How did you think about how are you going to fund it? Um, really that, that first inception of, you know, what's the makeup going to be that's going to make this have a great trajectory? Yeah, I think, oh, that's a lot of questions in one. I mean, I would say, so, so one quick step back and we talk about the Steve Jobs of the world and this one thing again that, that sort of as I've learned over time is that there, there is no one special. You're right. No one, no one has superpowers. Um, no one is special. I've, I've never been a huge fan of celebrities. I'm not a big, you know, starstruck. Oh, wow. This is this person. Um, and the reason really is for me, uh, again, Alyssa, my father's always taught, my father's always been bad with names, right? It's a, it's unfortunate that it's a, it's a skill that he's never had, but what it did is it meant that everyone to him was, um, you know, was only as good as what they've just gone and done. They've had to have done something or contributed in some way. Or say something smart, right? They can't just be a name. They can't say, I'm this person and he'll be impressed because he literally can't remember who they are. So um, so this has taught me something really in my life, which is people are not special. It's attrition. It's the dedication of time. You know, Steve Jobs is, is not special. He had no superpower. It was the absolute dedication to the cause. And so when, you know, coming back to when you said, why go and now try this? Why not stay there? I think it's this, which is, I know you can go and do it. You can build something as large as you want. You just need to go and do it. You have to put in the time and surround yourself with the right people, yeah. which takes the time and, you know, that responsibility. Yeah. And you can go and do it. So the question is then, if you want to, why don't you do that? And that's what drives me is, is knowing that no one is special. They didn't get there. Everyone's got this nice book that they publish and it's all back solved, you know, narrative fallacy rubbish, right? It really is. It's just a reflection, you know, it's just a retrospective view of, of what happened. They had no clue at the time. All they knew at the time is I'm going to get it done. Yeah. I'm going to have the tenacity to work on it until it works. Yeah. And that's and that's really what what is the mindset that I come to this with, which is let's go and build something meaningful. That's important. It has to be meaningful. And for me, I think that the democratization of credit is meaningful. Typically, if you think about it, it's the normal problem. It's like that reverse pyramid problem. The, the issue is that the people who have money have free access to it. The people who need the money get charged the most for it. And it doesn't really make any sense. And so what we're doing at Zilch is democratizing access to free credit. That is what we are doing. And you're seeing this become very popular, especially in, with our customer base, target customer base, which is young millennial Gen Z customers. They favor access, yeah. they champion access over most other things, right? I want access to have an equities portfolio. I never had the option to do that. You would have to walk in and have a banker at Credit Suisse or wherever you bank, and you have to have a portfolio of at least X many million, and then maybe you get someone to help you buy and trade equities. Guess what? You can download an app for that now yeah. and do it yourself. That's why everyone's like, wow, why does everyone love Robinhood? Well, that's why I want access that I never had before. And it's the same with free credit. Why should I not have the ability as a customer today to go and spread the cost of something over time and not be financially penalized for the privilege when someone who's very wealthy has that access all the time? Why? And that's really, so for me, you know, that's, that's what, when I look at what I wanted to go and build, this was important 
and this probably is the single biggest thing, what are you interested in doing as a product? What's going to be the outcome? You know, raising money for a business, making money is actually not a business's objective. We know that, right? The money fuels the rollout of a product or service that hopefully transforms or changes people's lives. That's the point of business, yep. is to change what people do or how they do it, not to make money. So, so you know, for me, the mission was we need to go and build this and it's meaningful. I've seen it be successful in Africa. And when I moved to the UK six, seven years ago, what I was very interested to see, and yet this might come as a surprise, but I remember I'm not from here. I'm from a developing economy. And I move over here and I realize that there's millions of people here that do not have access yeah. to free credit or very low cost credit. Millions. Absolutely. Like if, if we think of some of the, the guests who um, have a similar purpose who've been on the show, it ranges from, you know, James at Hasty yeah. um, and um, Peter Wage Stream, where they're looking at it from the, the wage perspective and what you've earned for people who are in hospitality, let's say, sure. allowing you to have that in your account as you go. And then if we go to, you know, the slight, slightly uh, more prime type of um, customer base, then of course, like your Revoluts, where they're giving um, access to tools that, like you say, you would have had to have an account with Coots and yes. a high net worth individual, right. for instance, which is uh, some of the companies uh, doing that right now are brilliant. And then you've because of your background, looked at it from a, let's spread the payment moving forward. And um, you've done that at a time where this business model has been um, celebrated. Lots of venture capital money has come into it. And there's a bunch of incredibly successful, huge businesses doing this. Yeah, great companies. Um, let's use this um, to clarify what you think Zilch's unique proposition is, if you think there is one. Yeah, sure. So. I mean, really what, what, for me, the biggest trick is when you go and you start a company, you have, you, you mostly suffer from most people have this issue, right? You go and you research, you go and start Googling it because I want to know how many people have this idea and off you go and you suffer from confirmation bias, right? You only read the stuff that you want to read the stuff that tells you otherwise you don't want to read that. So you go and you Google it and you find the stuff that says, no, no one's really doing this. You know, and you go, yeah, that's perfect. Great. But you ignore all the articles about these companies that are doing this, or maybe even doing it great and amazing and have raised lots of money. That's what a lot of people do when they start. What I prefer to do is only read the stuff that, that proves me wrong. I would, I actually like to research something and, and be convinced not to do it. So when I set off to go and build something, what I would like to do is go and find products that do this thing and use them myself. And do I actually like them? And guess what? If I find one that's amazing, rather invest in that company and let them carry on and then go and try and build something that's going to compete with it because there's a winner. Yep. And, and so that's really was the same for me with this. And so buy now, pay later as it's come to be known. And I mean, you know, we all just have to be honest with ourselves. This is not new. <laughs> okay. Layaway has existed for many, many, many years and uh, countries like South Africa We've had layaway forever. It was just the other way around. You want a pair of shoes, they keep it in the shop and you pay every week until you've paid for the shoes, then you get the shoes. In this case, of course, it's going the other way. You get the shoes up front. Yeah. So, um, so that's a nice change. But needless to say, installment payments, point of sale finance, layaway, it's been around forever. But how you package those things together and deliver them is important. So needless to say, when I looked at the market about three years ago, there's the obvious players that the market 
as you mentioned, and frankly, some amazing companies. But there was a bit of a problem for me in how these companies were going about this. And fundamentally, it just lies in the answer to one question. Who is the customer? And the answer in all of the other businesses' cases is that the customer is the retailer. That's who they serve first. And then as a consequence of serving the retailer, they provide a service to the end consumer. And that is where the problem begins, in my mind. You cannot serve two masters at the same time. It's a problem. And so you have this this unfortunate um, misalignment of interest that happens. And there's numerous things that happen in this case. The retailer may want you to approve more customers at checkout. Guess what? You're overlending to end consumers. There's a lot of these things that could happen. And I'm not saying they happen all the time, but it can happen. You have a misalignment, a natural misalignment of interest. Yep. And that was, for me, the problem. And so, you know, so how I like to think about it is an analogy when you look at two analogies. The one is if we think about Amazon's story. And you look at Amazon's story, go back to the beginning, remove all the narrative fallacy, right? And you look at the reality. Correct. They built a logistics infrastructure and they started with books. Great. They could have sat and got and said to themselves, guys, it's too hard to go and get end consumers, but we can deliver books. So why don't we go to each bookstore one by one and we'll say to those bookstores, if you want to sell your books online, we'll show the book to the customer for you and we'll ship it to them in a day for you. Sound familiar? Sounds like BNPL 1.0, right? The problem with that is I think they would have built a really amazing company and it would have been called DHL or UPS or DPD, they would have become a commodity, which is what I think BNPL 1.0, the current integrated providers are becoming. It's a race to zero. It's becoming a commodity. But we know that Amazon didn't do that. They went direct to the customer and said to that customer, you can have any book in the world and we'll ship it to you in a day, but you got it from Amazon. And that's how we thought about Zilch. Why is it the customer's problem? Who are we integrated with? Which retailers can you shop at? Which can't you shop at? Like you have with other service providers in BNPL today. Why is that the customer's problem? Why don't we go direct to the customer and say to them, you can buy now, pay later, anywhere you like, online, offline, tap and pay over time. Amazon, eBay, Etsy, wherever you want to go, we'll give that to you. Yeah. But you got it from us. I love it. And if we think of the opportunity then that's different in that analogy with Amazon and then you guys, well, obviously they're very famously, very quickly going to do, other than monumentally profitable things like AWS, Yes, um, is they, for a long period of time, carry the business aggressively into expanding into a set of everything, the everything store. Yeah. So now in this final part, let's project, you know, great traction. You've got to over, and we don't know what the number is today. It will be more, but 1.2, 1.3 million um, customers? Yes. Somewhere around this? Yeah. So we're sitting at over 1.3 now. Amazing. Registering about 200,000 a month. And that was a few of the things I wanted to discuss, which is people are using this now uh, more frequently in a, in a week or a month than on other um, BNPL version ones yes. in a year. And I assume that's because they're coming to the Amazon, they're coming to the Zilch in preference to at each shop is just randomized who they're using. You got it. Yeah, that's right. So what opportunity then, thinking about purpose and impact and making this as big a business as possible, you know, 20, 30, 40, 100 billion pound business, 
what could it do? What could it move out into? Would you stay true to this and geographically expand out? Talk us through the projections. It's, it's both of those. So, you know, right now we're in the UK. We've just set up all of our partners in the US and we're coming to market Q1 next year. Yeah. So we're excited about that. Amazing. And so similar to what you've seen in companies like Revolut as a rollout approach, that's what you're going to see here. This is not a, I don't want to mention other companies that have struggled a bit, you know, we're going to this country or we're kind of sort of trying, but they never get it. Happens. N twenty six. Just put it back from. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and then there's been a couple of other near banks with beautiful shiny cards that have not quite gotten it right. So, so for us, because we have such a beautiful over the top model, we can roll out through social media rather than through sales teams, and that's the problem again with BNPL one You need sales teams. You need to sell to retailers. You need to integrate with Zilch. We don't have that because I've got two hundred staffs, not many. Exactly right. So you know, we we don't have this problem. So we can actually we could launch a new country every second month. And so, you know, right now, big focus on US and then middle of next year, we're looking at Europe and that's where we're going to really start to see traction with rolling out. So territories are definitely interesting to us rolling out in other countries. We think that, again, we should democratize access to this product of ours. Everyone should get the opportunity to use Zilch. But, but where do we go from here as a product offering? That's really important. And I think I'll say two things about that. So the first is, we see all BNPL 1.0 again as merchant acquiring companies. They sell to retailers. So the problem with that is you can't just come up with any new way to pay and launch it because they're not your customers. Yeah. They're the retailer's customers. So in Zilch's uh, case, we don't have this problem. So we started with Pain4. We have a product we launched many months ago now called Zilch Now, and that's a pay in one and you get up to 5% cash back. Sorry, 5% cash back. You need to flip those, don't you? They're just stopping, sorry. So okay. they're cutting you mid. And then I know we're kind of going a lot longer than what well, time do you absolutely have to? Half past? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much half past. Okay, we've got we've got a good we can do ten minutes, it's fine. I mean, cool. the other thing's Okay, cool. after this we can we can yeah. probably wrap. Um so that's good. Okay, yeah. we're good. Yeah. All right. So recently we launched pay in one with you pay everything at checkout with up to five percent cash back. Yep. Um and we've then launched tap and pay over time for in-store brick and mortar. Still 70% of all sales is offline, of course, right? And so the, the great thing about this is we've got three ways to pay today. We could come up with any new way we want to pay that our customers are demanding, build it in two weeks, and ship it for a dime to every customer we have, and they could use it anywhere in the world instantly. Amazing. Now, the reality is if you version 1.0, that's not true. Yep. You would have to go and ask that retailer, oh, is it okay if I switch this payment option on? And that's the limiting side to what we see in the version 1.0 of BNPL. This is why Zilch is so interesting. Do you see any of them pivoting into your version? Would they be able to do that? We certainly see a few of them have already begun trying, but without getting into the detail of this, very difficult to go and change a merchant acquiring business into a customer-centric business. Not just because you have to rearrange all of your teams and engineering, but because you have contracts with retailers that are three, four years at a, at a time, what do you do about those contracts? Yeah. And some of these guys have got hundreds of thousands of those. So you've got a massive advantage here to push into this. We believe so. Yeah. And so to answer your question moving forward, you know, today, what we don't want to get hung up on is, you know, sort of this movie I feel like we've all seen before. So you've got a lot of BNPL now racing to be this shopping app, you know, this big destination app. And I don't know about you, but I know for a fact, our customers, myself, our team, we're not going to your app to discover cool stuff. We just not, right? We discover that on YouTube, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Snap. We discover that on TV, wherever we discover it, not your app. 
All right, it's not going to be the case. So we don't buy it. We kind of feel like I'm watching this movie again of AltaVista and Yahoo and AOL. You know, we're going to be the internet portal of the world. What we're going to do at Zilch is not that. We're going to focus on saying an approach similar to what Google took. While everyone else was plastering the business news and stocks and all the stuff on their homepage for you that no one cared about or ever used, Google just said to themselves, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to be the best at one thing, and that is answering your question even if we have to give you information from Yahoo. Yeah. And with Zilch, that's what we're focusing on. We're going to be the best way for you to pay over time anywhere you want for anything. And, and that product of ours will develop in so many more things. Lots of different ways to pay, longer durations, et cetera. And of course, lots of different ways to fund. We know that we don't just have fiat currency in the world today. Yeah. So how do I fund these transactions and how can I do them differently? And that's what we're going to focus on as we move to more virtual payments in the virtual world, you know, you can add Zilch, for instance, to Amazon today, go to Amazon Go, the cashierless checkout here in London, grab your groceries, walk out the front door and pay over time with Zilch and not touch a thing. How does that look in the next few years? And that's really what we're focused on. So exciting. I, I love the examples you give as well. So I just read all of those stories. Um, so, you know, what's really interesting for me on this show is when am I coming across a founder or a business that could be massive? And it certainly feels like you've got that opportunity and that you've got the um, appetite to not in the next year or two take some type of event that's going to make you extortionately rich already, but like take this to some massive, massive type of level. So, I mean, before the show, you were mentioning that, which is incredibly unique at this stage, you and the, the, the powers that be still have 50% control of this business. Yes. And uh, maybe we'll do a whole different show on yeah. that, Phil, because it'd be yeah. very interesting uh, for the audience to understand how you've achieved that. You know, on paper, wealthy man at the moment. So congratulations. It doesn't feel like that really is what's driving you here at all. What we know, we, we, we understand what drives you day to day and you want to make this bigger. But what type of goal do you have? How big can this business be? Because it's, it's exciting to think of a business that was founded in the UK, you know, going through the 10 billion pound valuation going could it get to 100 billion how big do you think this could be well i mean you know right now we we truly feel like in this space it's transforming credits it's it's kind of had that moment that crypto or, or blockchain had you know some some years back initially all the banks kind of mm, no no this is going away it's a bit of a fad it's not interesting and then all of a sudden everyone had to announce what their, their strategy was in the space we're seeing that now with institutions in BNPL. Initially, it was, oh, this is niche lending. It's cool, but it's who cares? Now you've got all the big institutions starting to say, oh, you know, well, we're actually going to do this with, you know, Apple and Goldman. Oh, we're going to do yeah. something, et cetera, Capital One. So everyone's feeling like they need to announce they're doing something. My view is that's a lot of lip service to shareholders. I and mean, we've not seen anyone do anything really of any substance yet. The point being, it's good news because what it tells us is everyone can see that you know, it's a huge vindication for the space and everyone can see that this is certainly a new way for people to defer payment. Um, and so, you know, if I look at the opportunity, it's so massive, it's so large. If you look at, just just look at e-com in the States as an example, 1.1 trillion by 24, probably 1.7 trillion. Um, you know, right now, BNPL is like 18 to 20 billion. Of that, that's about one and a half percent. So you look at what it could be, there's such significant room for us to all grow. This is not a winner takes all or even most. Yeah. This is probably going to be a number of big winners, as we saw in the credit card issuing space. Yeah. 
a lot of companies in that space that are huge. So, you know, can this be 100 billion plus? Absolutely, and why not? You know, we really truly believe that. And if you look at comps in the market, Afterpay sold for, a, you know, north of 27 billion. You've got a firm that's north of 30. Yep. You know, and you've got Klarna that, that right now is, is valued high. And we know that they're looking at coming to market for, you know, pushing towards a 100 billion mark. So we really do think that the sky's the limit here with this. If you get it right and continue to service the customer, and that's really what we need to focus on. Yeah, and you know, winning in doesn't have to win it all. Winning in America is going to be the thing next year. I'm sure a part, a big part of your focus is going to yes. be on, which is very exciting. Um, I think we've got to do that other show at some point because I, I really want to go into the journey of um, raising and also like bringing Goldman Sachs to the table and all this type of stuff, but. Um, you've got a, a conference that you need, a panel that you need to be on. So I'm just going to ask one final question. Yeah. And I'm a bit nervous to ask this because you've said seven times that you don't believe anybody has anything special about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. the searching for Marnie And uh, Mana is, you know, from gaming, you've got power. And then Mana, you've got magic, which might be your sword or it could be yeah. you're really quick at running or whatever it might be. So try your best to answer this. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's going to be a hard one. <laughs> Phil, what would you say your mana is? Um, so, so if I had to, I would probably say it's finding good people, finding great people and, and bringing great people together. I would say that's probably what that is. So, so storytelling, being able to, to basically sit down and convince fantastic people <laughs> to join me and do this thing that, you know, I've, I've come up with and I think can be a great success. I would say probably storytelling to people to make them buy into, you know, what it is that I'm trying to achieve would probably be it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's one of the, the great ones and ones that I, I resonate with, because I believe that, you know, companies are, um, you know, there's some part of the individuals and the talent in them when then there's purpose and vision that's aligned. And so. You know, being able to rouse the right talent into this organization and inspire them uh, is crucial, right? No, no, absolutely. Of course, it's still, yeah, it's like, it's still like we say, it's the most important thing we do is hire. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, so, so being able to put together great people. And in this case, by the way, as you say, we'll allude to, you know, how we've done our funding and how we've come to where we are today. And with my co-founder, we've managed to get this, you know, to the point we have um, on ordinary shares, which is quite a phenomenal thing. And, and we still own 50 plus percent of the business. Um, and really a lot of that has to be uh, attributed to him and the strategic vision on that side of the business. Because this is one thing we see a lot of founders fall short on. Yeah. You always have a minimum of two customers, whoever you serve with your product and the corporate market. Yeah. Right. And so, and so you need to serve both of those. And, and a lot of us go off as entrepreneurs, you build something really awesome. And you completely forget about the corporate finance strategy of the business. And the two are really important, have to go hand in hand. Thank you, Ola. Um, thanks for your time. And uh, congratulations on, you know, I know you'll be the guy who wouldn't pat himself on the back at any time, probably, because on to the next thing. But like, genuinely for the massive traction and success you've had so far. And really excited to see where the journey takes you next. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you having me on the show and look forward to the next time. Likewise. Right. Cheers, Phil. Cheers. Thanks.